thank God for our musicians who lead us so beautifully in worship week after week and for all who have led us in worship today. Today we are concluding a sermon series called Questions Raised. We have been discussing some of the many good questions that arose as our congregation read through the New Testament during 2022. While I could not engage all of the questions that were raised, um, there were some that tended to bubble up to the surface or were asked more than once, things like that. And by the way, these sermons in this series are not answers to the questions. They are pastoral responses that I hope we can all uh, continue growing with in our faith. I do want to address uh, Romans 8.28 today, and the reason is that some of the questions that have arisen had to do with why bad things happen to good people, and also had to do with questions about predestination and free will. And these types of questions make me think of Romans 8.28, which I'll read from the New Revised Standard Version, and the title of the sermon is, When Only One Lamp Is On. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Let us pray. Lord God, in this preaching moment, I simply ask that you would help me to speak your word, help them to hear your word, and Lord, help us all to do your word. I pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Some years ago, a devout Christian man I know weathered a very difficult ordeal. His wife was experiencing life-threatening health problems, and he was trying to care for her as well as their children, all while keeping up with his demanding full-time job. During one of his wife's hospitalizations, I went to visit him one night at their home. He was alone when I got there. The look on his face was dim, and the house was too. I saw one lamp on in the corner of the living room by the coffee table. And it appeared to be the only light on in the entire house. I still remember the darkness of hardship hanging heavily in the air as shadows of adversity were bearing down. This world can be a harsh and sometimes harmful habitat. Scripture does not sugarcoat this in the least. In Romans 8, Paul says, All of creation groans with decay. He acknowledges the sufferings of this present age, including hardship, distress, persecution, famine, peril, and the sword. Paul recognizes that life is riddled with sin and pain, vengeance and violence, 
earthquakes and fires, disease and sickness, grief and loss, and physical and emotional turmoil. Yet amid all this, he insists that God is working for the good. At least that's my preferred translation of Romans 8.28 from the NIV. In all things, God works for the good of those who love God. This verse may be the clearest biblical statement concerning providence. Providence is the doctrine of how God sustains and rules creation. In other words, providence describes how God works in the world. People hold many different views on providence. At one extreme are those who say God made the universe, set some natural laws in place, and now operates in a totally hands-off fashion. At the other extreme are those who say God made the universe and now dictates and meticulously controls every single thing that happens in it. The majority of Christians, however, believe something in between. Many Christians, myself among them, believe God has endowed creation with freedom, including the free will of humanity. We are not robots automatically executing a pre-programmed operation. We are not puppets that God pulls on a string. We are sentient beings with a genuine capacity to love, and to sin. We make real decisions with real consequences. At the same time, God is not hands-off. God works among us, around us, within us, above us, and through us in marvelous and mysterious ways. In short, then, providence is God's good work within a free creation. This claim, of course, prompts a number of questions. For example, what about divine foreknowledge? Doesn't God know the future? I believe God knows the future, but this knowledge is not causative. In other words, just because God knows something does not cause it to happen. Baptist theologian Roger Olson writes, it is as if God has a crystal ball, but God's preview of human decisions does not in any way render them inevitable. Rather, the decisions cause God to know them. But what about God's sovereignty? Isn't God in control? I believe God is the sovereign Lord over all things, yet not everything that happens is God's will. Jesus himself taught that the kingdom of God, the reign of God, the rule of God is tiny as a mustard seed. 
Yet one day, it will become the greatest of shrubs. In other words, God's kingdom is here now in part, but will arrive fully in the future. To affirm God's sovereignty then is to affirm God's ultimate reign. The doctrine of divine sovereignty is that nothing can stop God's kingdom from coming. Notice that Romans 8.28 does not say all things are caused by God, nor does it say all things are good in themselves. It says in all things God works for the good of those who love God. One example is the story of Joseph in the Old Testament book of Genesis. Joseph was mistreated by his brothers and sold into slavery. He was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife and unjustly imprisoned, vexed by all manner of adversity and injustice. Joseph knew what it was like to be in a dark house where only one lamp was on. Yet God was working amid all this, and Joseph eventually wound up in a position of power, royalty, and prosperity. He finally said to his brothers in Genesis 50, 20, Though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good. What others intend for our detriment, God uses for our benefit. The Joseph Saga suggests that God weaves various factors together like the threads of a fabric. God takes human decisions, cause and effect, social and systemic forces, the confluence of countless factors, some lovely, some unlovely, and God weaves them together creatively to make something beautiful in the end. Christians can often see in our own lives how God weaves a negative into a positive. After graduating college, I did not receive a scholarship to my first choice for divinity school. So I enrolled at my second choice and I was initially a bit deflated. But I met a professor there who inspired me to preach and helped me get into graduate school which set me on a path that led me here to this wonderful congregation that I am now so very blessed to pastor. When I asked a girl out one summer and got turned down, partly because she had a boyfriend I did not know about, and evidently he was not worth leaving for me, I was initially a bit deflated. But the following fall, I met my amazing wife, Dana, at that same Second choice, divinity school. There are times when we can look at our lives and trace the lines of providence that have brought something good out of something bad. 
something advantageous out of something adverse or something bright out of a dark night when only one lamp was on. The point is not that God purposes our suffering, but that God repurposes it. God can take something that's out to harm us and use it to help us. God can take something menacing and use it to bless us. God can take something that's against us and use it to do something for us. The great 4th century preacher John Chrysostom said, If tribulation or poverty or imprisonment or famines or deaths or anything else should come upon us, God can change them into the opposite. For this is one instance of God's ineffable power that God can make painful things appear light to us and turn them into things which can be helpful. There are occasions, however, when it's not so clear how God is working for the good. When I was pastoring in North Carolina, there was a church softball game one night. Somebody hit a fly ball to the outfield and the two outfielders chasing it collided with one another. One of them bounced back in no time. But the other one hit his head in just the wrong way and ended up in a coma. This man was a devout Christian. He was very involved in his church. He was the director of exceptional children for the county school system. He was widely beloved throughout the whole community. As his life hung in the balance, a friend of his said to me, Do you think God will do a miracle to save him? He needs to because I have never met a better guy. Sadly, the man passed, leaving behind his family, friends, and students who loved him so, all because of a bizarre accident at a church softball game. I have no definitive answer as to how God was working for the good in that situation. Perhaps God was working in the people who were showering his family with love. Perhaps God was working through this man's Christian witness, which received widespread attention and inspired many. Perhaps God was working in other ways that I cannot discern. But the point of Romans 8.28 is not to put a rosy frame around tragedy. It is rather to affirm that God is always good, God is always working, and God is always with us and for us, even amid brutal heartbreak. God works for the good in all things, but God's good work is not the causative factor in every distinct situation. Think of the mass shootings that unfold with devastating regularity in our country. Think of the horrors of human trafficking all around the globe. Think of the countless deaths that occur each day due to malnutrition, disease, war, even car wrecks. I once heard a pastor at this big, 
huge church in Florida. Preach about how his teenager had barely avoided a car wreck the previous week. He said she eluded disaster because God controls our cars like he's playing with matchbox cars. What a shabby conception of providence. On the other hand, William Sloan Coffin, former pastor of the Riverside Church in New York City, preached a legendary sermon following his son Alex's death in a car accident. Do you think it was the will of God, Coffin asked, that Alex never fixed that lousy windshield wiper of his? That he was probably driving too fast in such a storm? That he probably had a couple of Frosties too many? Do you think it is God's will that there are no street lights along that stretch of road and no guardrail separating the road and Boston Harbor? He declared, God doesn't go around this world with his finger on triggers, his fist around knives, his hands on steering wheels. God is dead set against all unnatural death. It's clear in Coffin's sermon just as it is in Scripture, what my theology professor, Frank Tupper, taught me. Providence does not always mean protection. Consider the biblical story of Job. Job was righteous and blameless, a paragon of virtue, yet he experienced tremendous trials including the theft of his property, the loss of beloved family members, and the onset of a painful, debilitating illness. If anyone knows what it's like to be in a dark house with only one lamp on, it's Job. According to Scripture, God did not cause Job's troubles. Satan did. In fact, God watched over Job through it all. And in the end, God restored Job's life. If Job is any indication, there is not always protection, but there is always providence. One thing to keep in mind during the dim hardships of life is that suffering does not mean that God is angry at us or that God is getting us back for something we've done wrong. The story of Job suggests that suffering sometimes comes to the righteous. And the story of Jesus confirms this point decisively. The greatest, holiest, most righteous and faithful person ever to walk the planet suffered an early, painful, unjust death on a shameful cross. Our Lord, the one we follow, the one we seek to imitate, suffered pernicious injustice, physical agony, emotional anguish, social rejection, and died way too young. When Christians encounter various trials, we sometimes may wonder if we've done something to deserve them or if we have somehow fallen out of favor with God, but our sufferings actually confirm that we are united with Christ and bound for the kingdom of heaven. Paul says in Romans 8, 17 that we are children of God 
and joint heirs of God's kingdom if, in fact, we suffer with Christ. For Christians, suffering is not a sign that we're on God's bad side, but rather a sign that we are sharing in Christ's death and in his life, that we're participating in Christ's cross and in his resurrection, that we are one with Christ in his troubles and in his triumph. The death of Christ appeared to be a total tragedy, a thoroughly nefarious event, an unredeemable catastrophe. But in the cross, God was working for the good to redeem the world. The God who worked for the good through Christ's crucifixion is always working for the good through our trials. Sometimes we can see how God is working. Other times we walk by faith, not by sight. Sometimes it's clear how God is weaving something good from a bad situation. Other times we trust that despite all appearances, God is still working for the good. The reason we can trust that God is always working for the good is because God loves us. God loves us unconditionally. God loves us unrelentingly. God loves us unceasingly. God loves us unfailingly. God loves us unendingly. This is why Paul finally concludes in Romans 8, in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer because of Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Which takes me back to my friend in his time of trial. I can still picture that dark house where only one lamp was on in the corner by the coffee table. I can still remember walking with him toward it and sitting down on the sofa beside it. Despite the darkness, there was plenty of light for us to talk together. There was plenty of light for us to pray together. There was plenty of light for him to Show me this sheet of paper on the coffee table that had several passages from Scripture on it. He picked it up and he showed it to me beneath that lamplight and he said, I've just been going over the things I know are true. God loves us. The Holy Spirit is with us. And He never leaves us. In that moment, the light from that one lamp was strong enough to bear all the weight of the darkness. The light from that one lamp was bright enough to defy all the shadows of adversity. It seemed to me that the light was shining in the darkness and the darkness could not overcome it. 
So the next time hardship casts an ominous shadow over your life, just remember to keep one lamp burning. Amen.